Welcome to Pastor Matters, the podcast of the Center for Preaching and Pastoral Leadership at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We hope this conversation will both equip and encourage you to lead healthy churches that make disciples for the glory of God. Hi, I'm Brendan Ward. And I'm Ron Jorlock. We want to thank you for listening to another episode of Pastor Matters. We have a very special guest joining us for today's conversation via Zoom. Today we're having a discussion on the pastoral qualifications and leadership with Dr. David Mathis. Dr. Mathis serves as senior teacher and executive editor at DesiringGod.org, a pastor at Cities Church in St. Paul, Minnesota, and an adjunct professor at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis. He is the author of several books, including Habits of Grace, Enjoying Jesus Through the Spiritual Disciplines, and his latest book, which we'll be discussing today, Workers for Your Joy, The Call of Christ on Christian Leaders. Dr. Mathis, thank you again, brother, for taking some time out of your schedule to join Ron Jor and I for today's conversation. Thank you, guys. It's an honor to be with you. Absolutely. So your book will be released tomorrow, September 13th. You wrote this book for pastors and for church leaders. So why don't we just start with you sharing a little bit about the book? Why did you write it? What do you hope pastors and church leaders can gain from reading it? Well, the gestation, I guess, of this book very much corresponds with the life of Bethlehem College and Seminary here in Minneapolis. And so uh, for a while, this was an apprenticeship uh, from 99 to 2009 called TBI, the Bethlehem Institute. And then 2009, 2010 started to become a full seminary and college. And uh, early on, they came to me. I was I was full-time at Desiring God, and they asked if I would uh, adjunct a course and so I you know, had my dreams, oh, maybe they want me to teach on the epistle to the Hebrews or <laughs> Systematic Theology 1, one of these very uh, you know, exciting kind of seminary courses. And they uh, said, we got an assignment for you. It's the eldership class. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, okay, well, I, I never dreamed of teaching in the eldership class. You know, this, I didn't go through seminary, and I don't read through my Bible. Think, oh, I'd love to talk to guys about eldership. But that was my assignment. And so uh, I started working on this eldership class, and we used Alexander Strauch's book, and and we would supplement that with some other things. And we used Larry Osborne's book, Sticky Teams, and Don Carson's book, The Cross and Christian Mm -hmm. Ministry. And over time, in the classroom with these guys working on eldership, we tried to tackle what are the what are the relevant issues it, for pastoral ministry, for eldership, whether you're in a full time pastoral role or in a uh, if you're a volunteer pastor, you know, if you're sometimes called more often the, the elders there, it's the same office in the New Testament. We would try to get at some of those key issues in preparing the guys for for ministry. And one of the significant discoveries early on in this course was how all the issues that I felt like we needed to address in kind of an eldership 101 course for seminary guys, they all mapped on to one or more of Paul's qualifications for the elders mm. in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1. Mm. Just imagine that. Paul <laughs> knew what he was talking about. And here we are 2,000 years later, and these are not obscure virtues that passed with the time in the very different world of the first century across on the other side of the globe. These are amazingly relevant, live electric issues in the life of the church, in the character of people, in leadership, in a local congregation. And so that was a, that was a turn early on. I don't know if that was 2014, 2015. We began to structure the course 
by the elder qualifications. Mm-hmm. And it, it wasn't the sense of, oh, let's, you know, briefly go through the qualifications, keep it a surface level, but use each of the elder qualifications as a lens into the whole of pastoral ministry. And so the material here kind of developed here over the last decade in dialogue with seminary guys. And uh, now I'm excited to finally have it in book form. <laughs> there were various, various ones of these topics that took shape in articles at Desiring God, others uh, through sermons, if I was assigned a particular text. And now it's it's finally come together. <laughs> and I, I'm excited to have it together. We'll use it for the class. And I hope it's uh, I hope it's relevant more broadly for pastors, especially for guys training for ministry mm-hmm. and aspiring to ministry. Mm-hmm. But I hope also beyond that, that some congregants, some engaged church members who want to know, you know in the world of the rise and fall story, and want to know, in complement to the growing list of bewares they have yeah. about leaders, yeah. what are some corresponding positive things that we can pray for, look mm-hmm. for, expect, hold our leaders accountable for uh, in the local church? And so I hope it meets that need as well. Hmm. Well, brother, as an aspiring pastor, I can say this book was so, so challenging, but fruitful to read through, and I'm so grateful you wrote it. Let's talk a little bit about the structure of the book. You, you placed the 15 virtues for Christian leaders into three different categories in the book. Those three categories are humbled, whole, and honorable. Can you take a few minutes to explain why you divided them into those categories and how you arrived at those? Yeah, so the uh, one thing I found very helpful, <laughs> how, how far do you go back? Um, I was a student of John Frame at RTS Orlando in my seminary days, and uh, John Frame convinced me of the enigmatic power of three <laughs> don't try perspectival <laughs> mm-hmm. thinking uh, how often you know we tend as fallen finite creatures to view realities from a single or maybe if we're sharp a second a second perspective to kind of triangulate various items and it's often very helpful to view things from multiple perspectives to see where we're distorting things at the edge of our lenses or to catch our blind spots and so frame would often push us to, to see a third thing and give a third point to your two-point sermon. Is, is there a third perspective <laughs> that would help triangulate the data and help to see reality in three dimensions? And I, I found that over the years very helpful in thinking about spiritual disciplines or the means of grace. And so I did a three-part book a few years ago on on the habits of grace. And so as I came to this material, I thought, you know, we got these, these uh, I count 15 qualifications in First Timothy three, I count fifteen in Titus one. They largely overlap and correspond. Right. right. Uh, so there's that fifteen numbers, fifteen chapters in the book. But I was thinking how to how to structure these three to help make a significant macro point about eldership. And one thing that's on the face of the elder qualifications, you know, I guess two things that are on the face of the elder qualifications. One, and this is often emphasized how much the elder qualifications are about character, mm, how much right. they're about, you might talk about the category of integrity, of wholeness. There's the character qualifications. And sometimes we'll emphasize, like, these are about character. They're not about gifting. That's that's right. Uh, another surprising dimension of the elder qualifications is how public they are. Mm-hmm. You know, for, for those of us, uh, as we read the rest of our New Testament, and as we think about the essence of the Christian faith and of being a Christian, uh, the emphasis in being a Christian is not on that public dimension, you know, not for the eyes of others, you know, pray in secret in your closet. And so we come to the elder qualification. It's like, 
well, this is this is really public. Why why is it so public? Is that Christian? And the reason is is that office in the church is public. It's a public right. office. There's right. no private offices in the church. Oh, he's a private pastor, a private deacon. So the very nature of church office, which is very distinct and far secondary to the primary reality of having your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And so first and foremost, pastors are sheep. Mm-hmm. Jesus mm-hmm. is the chief shepherd. Far down the list, secondarily, would they be pastors? Would they be under shepherds? And there are public qualifications for being under shepherds in the church. And so I felt like that the publicness of the office needed to be owned and dealt with. So qualifications like being respectable, and maybe the most surprising, some of us well thought of by outsiders. You know, that needed mm-hmm. to be dealt with in a very public way. So there's that public dimension of, I call it uh, honorable, the man before the watching eyes of the church and the world. That's that's the public dimension. Then there's the integrity part, the character part, you know, husband of one wife and self-control, that the man is the, he's the same person in private as he is in public. Hmm. That the man that the family sees is largely the same man that you see in the in the pulpit that integrity aspect so that felt like it needed its own treatment and this some of these qualifications kind of clustered around the integrity piece the, the private life piece the home life piece of uh, managing his household well so that's the second part that's that's uh being whole so you got honorable as the public part the how the man is seen in the church and the world the wholeness of his private life cohering with that public life but then And I think this is the aspect that we all know to be true from the rest of the New Testament and the scriptures. It's not emphatic in the elder qualifications because it's a public office, but it's emphatic in the rest of Paul is the man before his God, you know, Mm -hmm. the under shepherd before the chief shepherd. And so there I thought it would be helpful to to deal with the issue of calling. You know, what is uh, – it's a very – controversial thing or at least right. you know often talked about thing am i called to this am i called to pastoral ministry even the kind of language we use around calling i think often uh seminary guys will use the language of calling to describe what paul calls aspiration mm-hmm. in verse one and so it might be helpful to deal first with the man before his god uh and humbled i think was a more fitting reality than humility. (laughs) Humility is a lifelong pursuit. Mm. Humbled is something that God can do to you in a moment. Right, (laughs) right, right. And over and over again. And we we do need humbled men who, uh, even when they show manifestations, they have manifestations of pride. They have ongoing work. God is still doing a work of humility in their lives, but the back... (laughs) of their pride has been broken right? and uh, we need humbled men. And so there we talk about the calling, the aspiration, and in particular that, that qualification in Titus one of not arrogant, yeah. <laughs> which, which is the reason that first Timothy three says not a new convert mm-hmm. uh, so that he may not become puffed up mm-hmm. with conceit. So there's that aspect. And then two key parts, maybe the two key functions of pastor elder local church leadership in the new Testament is teaching and governance, lead and feed, feed and lead. And so I thought we should deal early in this book with the pastor's call to be a teacher. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's the, that's the eighth of the 15 in first Timothy three. That's the culminating qualification in Titus one verse nine. 
it, it's massive. Like pastors are teachers. And uh, I didn't think it should wait till the end of the book or the middle of the book. <laughs> so I wanted to get it up front. And the kind of teaching that we do as pastors is not teaching ourselves. We're stewards. So we are humbled teachers. We are teachers under a standard, under a word that we have been given from the risen Christ and mm -hmm. his apostles. And so a manifestation of being humbled is being a faithful steward and teacher mm -hmm. in the church. So if you were applying to be uh, a chef, let's say, you know, you were going to be appointed as a sous chef, uh, you know, there would be certain things that you've got to know, like, for instance, how to cook. Um, if you don't know how to cook, you probably shouldn't be going into the chef business. Uh, same thing with a mechanic. If you're going to be a mechanic, you, you should probably know, you know, how things work. You know, how does a car work? Uh, uh, you should you should probably be able to identify what the engine is, uh, you know, and so forth. Or, or else, you know, you probably shouldn't be going into this. So we look at 1 Timothy 3, we look at Titus 1, we look at 1 Peter 5 and so on. And we see these qualifications. Uh, what do these qualifications tell us about what Christian leadership should be, like what, what it actually is. Like maybe, maybe let's reverse it. Uh, how would you define Christian leadership? And then how do the qualifications flesh that out? How do they tell us that this is, you know, this is the type of leader that we're looking for uh, in the church? Mm, that's good. The, uh, it, the title of the book comes from 2 Corinthians one twenty four. So the title is Workers for Your Joy, The mm -hmm. Call of Christ on Christian Leaders. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24, Paul's in this struggle with the Corinthians. There's, imagine this. There are suspicious people in the oh, Corinthian yeah. church. There's cynicism <laughs> in, in the first century church. Imagine that. 2,000 years ago, cynicism. It's not a new problem that people have, uh, have lost proper hopefulness and are trending cynical and suspicious and in paul wrestling uh in second corinthians the whole letter and in chapter one he gives this amazing glimpse of the heart of his apostleship which is very relevant for pastors teachers i'm applying it to all of us as pastors even though paul's talking about himself as an apostle he says corinthians not that we lord it over your faith which is same verb Jesus uses at the end of Mark 10 mm -hmm. that the Gentiles lord it over, but it should not be among you. Mm -hmm. I'm among you as a servant. I did not come to be served, but to serve. That same verb built on the kureo, kurios, as a, as a verb, to lord over with an intensive on it. Not to lord over, but he says, we work with you for your joy. Yeah. So at the heart, now, first of all, you, you, we've got to define joy on Christ's terms not the terms of the in-progress individual in the congregation. Mm -hmm. So the congregant doesn't set the terms of the joy. Jesus sets the terms of the joy. Mm -hmm. And pastors on Christ's terms are workers for the joy of our people. This is, this is what turns the vision of leadership upside down from so many places in the world. And it's increasingly countercultural, where leadership has come to symbolize status. It's come to symbolize getting your way. We don't want other people to, ha to have leadership over us because we presume that leadership is a privilege. You know, to be a leader means you get perks and that you get your way and that you get your comforts. And Christian leadership, is it's upside down. We're not laboring for 
my personal joy, my personal comfort. It's not a selfish pursuit. It is a self-interested pursuit in the ultimate good of those for whom we serve. Mm -hmm. So it is a working as a team. We can talk about plurality. The pastors working together with the people, not just doing it for them as if they have no agency, working with the people who are Christians themselves and humans themselves, working with them for their final, ultimate, deepest joy in Jesus. So that's, that's the place I'd go to, to get at the heart of the pursuit of joy in the leader for the congregation. One place that fleshes that out, as you know, is Hebrews 13, 17, mm -hmm. where Hebrews is talking to the people and tells them to submit to their elders, you know, mm -hmm. obey your elders submit to them those are keep as those who are keeping watch over your souls and will give an account and then he says to the people let them do this the pastors let the pastor leaders do this with joy not groaning because that would be of no advantage mm. benefit gain joy to you yeah so it's remarkable i'd call it a remarkable christian hedonistic argument here in in hebrews 13 17 he says People, he assumes, congregation, you want to be happy. You want advantage. You want benefit. You want gain. You're human. You're Christian. You want to be happy in Jesus. And so you want to do your part, congregation, that your pastors would labor with joy, mm -hmm. not groaning. And he means for the leaders to hear that word too. So the leaders would take from, from Hebrews 13, I'm supposed to labor with joy. Paul talked about laboring for their joy. First Peter 5 talks about doing it willingly, mm. eagerly, not under compulsion, not reluctantly, cheerfully. I want to labor from joy. And my joy in the ministry for these people, joy is going to be to their advantage, which is upside down from this, the assumed perspective of leadership right. uh, largely in society. Right, mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the qualifications a little bit more. Often we can find ourselves treating the qualifications as prerequisites for church leadership rather than ongoing graces required for daily work. Why is that a mistake to view it that way? One reason would be as you as you look into these virtues. I mean, it, it's it's an unusual text. You know, often uh, we're dealing with propositions and sentences, and and we are. You know, Titus one nine is a proposition. The whole of it. Is, is a proposition. It's framed as an assertion, but within it, there's this long list. What, what do you do with lists like this? You know, what, how, do you, how do you treat a list? Well, there are other things that the scriptures and the New Testament has to say about self-control <laughs> or sober-mindedness or being a one-woman man or this Didactikos, you know, able to teach. There's a huge theology of teaching in the pastoral epistles alone, not to mention the New Testament and the whole of the scripture. We call the, the first five books, you know, Torah, the teaching, you know, the instruction. So there are massive biblical realities that these little items in the list are tapping into. And so I think as you try to, it's, you know, it's very easy to read a list and items in a series very quickly and move on. Mm -hmm. And if we're reading our Bibles to quickly check a box and move on, we're not going to go into depth here. But if we, st if we stop to linger, if we meditate on the realities, what, what does Paul have in mind with sober-mindedness, with able to teach, with well thought of by outsiders. And we draw in some other mentions where Paul talks about outsiders and how Christians are to orient on outsiders and what it means for elders 
who are examples for the flock, First Peter 5 says, not domineering, that same verb from Mark 10, not domineering over the flock, but being examples for the flock. It tells us a lot about who the elders are to be. And as I found out in years of ministry and in doing the class, these map on to the various needs of pastoral ministry. And so that was that, that's probably the single single biggest discovery for me as a pastor elder over these last 10, 11 years, uh, it's talking through this topic with seminary guys, is these virtues are really relevant for everyday ministry. I mean, mm. every time the, uh, the elders gather together in council, at a pastor's meeting last night, to almost 11 o'clock. Late last night, we gathered together. It was so important. I mean, it was critical that we be sober-minded. That that is essential in the the pastor's calling. If if the calling is to feed the flock and lead the flock, that that governing function, that we govern the people, that the teachers would govern the people, it is critical that they be prayerful and that they be sober-minded. That is balanced and not extremist, like level-headed. Pastors are, are men who know how to keep their heads when people are going crazy. Heads are on fire all around them. And so every time they gather to counsel and 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 develop leadership for the church, that sober-mindedness is critical. And you can see one thing after another in the elder qualifications, if you linger over them, that are relevant for what the pastor needs not just on a weekly basis, but daily right. in the calling of his work. Right. Yeah, that's really helpful. Uh, you say in the book very early on that to embrace the calling of the pastoral office in the church is to embrace suffering. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yes. Uh, three sources. Second Corinthians 1, you know, he, uh, he comforts us in our affliction that we might comfort others. I, I do think that in signing up to be a pastor— uh, it's a weighty thing. I think you're you're. I think it's fair to say you're signing up in some sense under God. You're signing up for uh, trials mm. that will need comfort, so that you can comfort your people mm. in trials. I I I, I uh, assume that being a pastor will bring you in uh, in proximity to more suffering rather than less. Uh, some of that may be your own. Uh, that God chooses to put you through to make you the kind of man that he would, would be a good vessel for his His church. All, but just in the nature of pastoral ministry, in bearing the burdens and weeping with those who weep, you are going to be exposed in pastoral ministry to more pain, mm. more grief, right. more horror stories of the effects of sin than you would if you weren't a pastor. So there's that sense. And when persecution comes, when uh, in its various forms, however subtle or overt, the pastors are the ones who have signed up to take the first bullets. I mean, we're the ones who who should be taking the first lashes. So that's how Peter in First Peter chapter five gets to the to the elders. He's talking about suffering in chapter four. He's thinking about suffering, and so he's, he thinks, ah, so I need to address the elders because the elders are going to be critical in suffering. They're going to be taking the first of the suffering. They're going to be the first targets in the persecution, and so that's a sense in which it happens. And another would just be uh, would be the personal experience of having gone through pastoral ministry. I can th- think through how often the the burdens I'm carrying are by virtue of of that calling. I'm carrying some other person's pain, or I'm mm-hmm. exposed to some pain, or feel a sense of responsibility with the team of elders in the church that I wouldn't feel if I wasn't a pastor elder. 
And so uh, I, I do think that's part of the nature of the work and why Peter is so willing to shamelessly point to the crown of glory that's coming for those who stay faithful and those who endure. He is not afraid to point to the reward. There's going to be a reward for this. Right. This will not be a loss for you, Pastor. Yeah, yeah, more pain, more difficulty. Uh, but count it all joy. It will be worth it. Mm. <laughs> Jesus, the risen Christ, will see to it that it's worth it uh, someday. Yeah, that's so good. That's so good. So in chapter 9 of your book, uh, you gave it the title, The Tragedy of Distracted Dads. That's a title. <laughs> uh, you know, it almost sounds like that could be a book in and of itself. And if it felt like it uh, as you were as you were writing it, um, you wrote in there, one of the greatest needs that wives and children have and all the more in our relentlessly distracting age is dad's countercultural attentiveness countercultural attentiveness. What are some distractions uh, that hinder leaders from managing their households well? I mean, you see that priority in First Timothy. You see that priority in Titus. This, you know, it, you know, uh, in Timothy, Paul says, you know, if he doesn't know how to manage his own household, how is he going to manage the household of God? I mean, you know, so, I mean, this is a major, major, major deal. Uh, he has to uh, be a good, solid manager of his home. So what are the distractions, at least some some common ones, maybe some uh, some more contemporary ones, more recent ones, uh, that hinder leaders from managing their households well? Yeah. ESPN, NFL, MLB, Twitter, mm-hmm. um, social media. Uh, it, it could be some hobby that is uh, would have its space. Uh, uh, if it was reined in and not given sinful leash, and and, and none of those things are are evil. I mean, uh, right. Brandon and I were, were joking about uh, Texas Longhorns and Clemson football, and I'm a Clemson football fan, and I enjoy the the Minnesota Twins, and and those are things I think in in being faithful as a husband and as a pastor, and having a limited amount of time, and more more so than that, even more limited than our time. We often talk about you know, the time passing away and. You can never get back what you've lost. You only got 24 hours in a day. You have even less attention than mm. you have time mm. because you yeah. don't have 24 hours a day of attentiveness. <laughs> so and if true. you had, let's just say you have 18 waking hours, probably too many, 17 waking hours, you don't have 17 hours of attentiveness. You have less attention than you have time of day. Right. And what all, what Netflix wants what Facebook wants, what Instagram wants, uh, is your attention. ESPN wants your attention. Yeah. You know, th- these these devices are trying to get our attention, and there are uh, constructive, holy uses of these devices. And there's a lot of really subtle, trivial, just sapping of the attention that God gave men to build the world and lead the church. Satan would be very happy for men to just pour their attention into these devices. Uh, so we got we to be careful with that. There's, and I'm sure there's other things outside the devices as well that sap our attention. Mm-hmm. So thinking about how we steward our attention is very important. First and foremost, that, that, that Godward attention. You know, do we make the priority? I'm getting in my other book here, Habits of Grace. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, the priority of giving our first 
and best attention. Jesus liked the early mornings, it looked like. And so there's no biblical command about the early mornings, but it's a really good precedent to Mm -hmm. start your day with the first voice, giving your attention first to the voice of God in the scriptures by the spirit and giving your attention to your wife, to your kids, to make sure the home front is right with the investment of your attention. And then that's what's going to be required of the, of the pastor elders in the church. Uh, a, A pastor who spends all his time on social media is not being attentive to his flock. It, Twitter is not trending local. Mm-hmm. Twitter is trying to get your eyeballs to Washington, D.C. and mm-hmm. to this happening in that corner of the SBC and what's happening in the meeting in Anaheim. Mm-hmm. and all. It, it, th- those, those resources, it, it's moving our attention away from our actual lives where we can do something about it. To, well, the queen died in England. It, is that really what needs to consume my attention right now? That mm-hmm. the queen died at age 96 mm-hmm. in England. Maybe some people, <laughs> not me. <laughs> so uh, we, we should be very careful with our the use of these devices. They don't pull us out of our actual lives, our actual callings, the actual church and family that God has given us to invest our attention. That's why that's why it's countercultural, and we may have to take some drastic steps or some painful steps. I'm committed to this flock. God's called me to this people. I don't mainly learn about this people on Twitter. <laughs> I might learn of all sorts of horrors in the SBC on, on, that are drummed up on Twitter. But I need, to know, I need to know this people. I need to be attentive to this flock. We're called to watch over the flock. Mm. And that's not a watching that happens mostly or hardly at all through the Internet. Mm. Yeah. Now, I know, um, and, and this is unfortunately the reality with, with, with several uh, ministry homes, past, pastor homes, uh, is that you'll have a lot of children uh, by the time they get into adulthood or maybe even into teenage, uh, into uh, adolescence, but, but, but into adulthood where, uh, you know, we hear kind of over and over again uh, that, that, you know, they wish they had a better relationship with their dad, mm-hmm. but the church mm-hmm. was what, you know, so, so to speak, got in the way. Uh, you know, is it possible for the church to be one of these distractions as well? Not in the sense that uh, obviously the pastor, you know, should not give his attention to the church. He absolutely should give his attention to the church. But is it possible to give too much attention uh, to the neglect of your home? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, and and one thing I want to say into that is, and we talked about maybe we'd come back to plurality. So here's a real practical place where being part of a pastoral team, not Mm. being a lone ranger, Mm -hmm. can be so helpful and such a blessing. And let me just say as a parenthesis, uh, for pastors who would be listening to this, and you're a lone ranger, you don't want it, but this is the job you got, this is the calling you have from God, you're in some rural setting or whatever the setting is, and you're alone in the ministry. I I feel for you. Like you are not necessarily in sin to be in a solo pastoral situation. So don't don't condemn yourself unnecessarily. Now, it might be sin to just happily stay in a solo situation and not pray that God would change it or try to make some modest investments in other men to try to raise up men who could serve alongside. But mm-hmm. everywhere we see in the New Testament talking about local church leadership is plural. It's it's plurality. Jesus is the singular head of his church. He gets the glory of being the singular head 
and then his apostles are plural. And every instance in the New Testament of local church leadership is plural. So I, I think the team is important in this dynamic, that you are not, as a pastor, your church probably requires more attention than you can give your church in a holy way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, mm-hmm. why, that's why team can be is so important. And all the time, so I, I, I labor with a team of nine guys. We have a, a pastoral team of nine, nine pastor elders at our church. And while all of us are called to be ever vigilant, you know, be watchful, always be sober-minded, 2 Timothy 4, 5, mm-hmm. always be sober-minded, you know, always ready, be ready in season and out. So there's a sense in which there's no breaks, there's no vacation. We're always ready. We're always on right terms with God. Yet there's times where we're away for family. We're away on vacation. We don't have to be constantly attentive in particular to our, to the church right. because we're part of a team. Hmm. You know, we, we fill in each other's gaps. We got each other's backs. And that, that's a really significant thing. One practical thing to mention. I know that when I, when I push on plurality and that pastoral ministry is team, I know that's uncomfortable for some, but a lot of people, these days like amen amen but when i push on team teaching or team preaching Mm. that that means a little more resistance because a lot of us myself included got into ministry with a with the kind of i preach every sunday kind of paradigm right Mm -hmm. like this i'm this is what i'm getting to i'm called to be in the pulpit every sunday you know maybe that's that's what we felt called to we studied toward that the calling was confirmed and that that can pinch, a pinch thing. Somebody else in my my pulpit, somebody else in that pulpit. But that's an also a helpful aspect of giving appropriate attention, not just to the church, but to the family. Because the demands of preaching are most significant when school-age children are not at school, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? You know, kids, Our kids, my kids don't go to school on Saturday and Sunday. Our kids don't go to school Saturday and Sunday. <laughs> and that's that's when the preaching weight falls heaviest. Right. You know, the day before, the night before, the morning of. And it has been, I've, I've got 12-year-old twins. i got a seven-year-old daughter, five-year-old daughter. So for the whole of the life of City Church, these last eight years, I've had little ones in the house and now had seven, almost eight years of kids who were in you know, school during the day. And my time with him as dad is going to be evenings and weekends. And so for me to not be preaching every weekend or most weekends is a real blessing in this season of life for being dad mm. on Saturday and Saturday night and Sunday morning mm-hmm. and in going to church with the family. You know? um, and I understand not everybody's in that situation, but that can be a, a helpful aspect of relieving the demands, the particular demands of preaching in pastoral ministry, if they are weekly on a man who has, you know, kids who are in school. Mm, that's helpful. Yeah, yeah. So uh, most of the qualifications uh, in in Timothy and Titus and Peter deal with the character of the pastor. We we've spent much of our time talking about that, but you just started talking about the teaching ministry. And, and Paul does say that pastors must be able to teach. In fact, that's really the difference between the qualifications of the elders and qualifications of the deacon in, in 1 Timothy 3. Right. And, and you have a chapter on that very topic. And so uh, one question that I, I have is for those who are aspiring 
uh, for ministry, must they be able to teach effectively? Um, in other words, uh, should they be skilled teachers? And and really, what does that mean? What does it What does it mean to be a skilled teacher if he if that is a qualification for an elder? Um, the answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> and let me give let me give some layers of context. So yes, they must be effective because if they're not effective the wolves take the day. I mean, if, mm. if you can't be effective at teaching, then where's the protective function? Uh, if you're not effective at feeding the flock, the sheep starve. If you're not effective at protecting the flock, the wolves eat them. So the, the pastor elders must be effective teachers. Now, you got to ask, effective relative to what? Is that is that effective or skilled relative to the world's greatest orators who have famous podcasts online? Mm, right. you know, what's mm-hmm. the standard of comparison? And I think each local church needs to wrestle with its own context. I think this happens naturally. People often don't think about it intentionally, even not conscious of it. But I think this this happens. You know, a, a church can't hold their a small church in a rural setting. They can't expect to have a world class orator. And so eventually they they find the right guy who's contextually right for them. I do think it can be helpful to think, all right, here's what we're looking for. In in our congregation, in this season of life of our church, we need our pastors as a team to be the kind of men who are going to carry the day when false teaching and error comes in. So that effectiveness is important. But let's go back to the uh, the the word, the qualification, in the middle of the list. So it's the 8th of the 15 in 1 Timothy 3. And you know, in the ancient world, they love their chiasms and things are organized and you go to the middle of the chiasm and it's very important. And then Titus 1 has it as the, the final, mm-hmm. the culminating qualification uh, in verse 9 of Titus 1. And so the, the, the word there in 1 Timothy 3 is didacticos. And we don't have an exact equivalent in English. Um, it means something like able to teach is what the ESV has. I, I think the maybe it's the old uh, NAS had apt to teach. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they'll have skilled in teaching. Uh, if, if we could make up an English word that would correspond to deducticos, I think it'd be something like teachative. Mm-hmm. Wait, so if if the word talkative means somebody who enjoys or is given to talking, Teachative would mean something like someone who enjoys or is given to teaching. So one way I say it that I hope is memorable, memorable for me, (laughs) is I think a pastor elder, to be able to teach is not that this guy is able if you put a gun to his head. It's not like, well, he didn't really like to teach. He really, he enjoys the executive aspect. Like he's an administrator, you know, he meets the qualification. He's able to teach, like put a gun to his head and he'll do it. You know, he's not going to enjoy it, but he's willing. I don't think that's what teachative means. And you even make a point in the book too, that you say like, there's not multiple types of pastor elders. Like the, you know, you make the distinction of the the ruler elder and the the teaching elder in the book. That's right. Hey, you're, Brandon, you're getting me in trouble with my Presbyterian friends. If you <laughs> and Baptists can swallow that a little bit easier. Though, as our previous generation of deacon boards changes their name to elder boards, we got a lot of non-teachers sometimes mm-hmm. on these you know, elder boards and, and elder councils. Mm-hmm. And what we're looking for is not the kind of man who's able to teach with a gun to his head if he has to, but the kind of guy who 
even with the gun to his head, is probably not going to stop teaching because he, he's bent in that way. He's given to teaching. He processes the world as a teacher. And he has the perspective of a teacher, which is hopeful. I see the best in people. I think that if I open God's word and I tried to faithfully, patiently explain it to them, that they're going to change, that the Holy Spirit has power, that he changes lives, that people change by the power of God's word. So I'm going to teach God's word and watch God do the work of changing people. That's very different than someone who's quarrelsome, yeah. which we can talk about later if we want. But that's the contrast in the pastoral epistles between didactic cost, those who teach with patience, and those who bicker quarrel, you know, mm-hmm. just pick fights over here at the margins. It's a very mm-hmm. different thing. And so with the pastor elders, we need those who are didacticos, meaning there's an eagerness to teach. They want to teach. Like you said, Ron Jor, there's an effectiveness at it. They, they've got to be able to do it. They've got to mm-hmm. be able to do that. And then I think what's uh, assumed, but we should make explicit, is that they're equipped to do so. You know, yeah. Paul talks in 1 Timothy 4, 6 about you have been trained in the sound words. This is an important place for seminaries that you've been trained. So there is a, a training that happens. Conversion is not the sole qualification for eldership. <laughs> there is a training that needs to happen, a training of the soul in terms of character and integrity and a training in terms of doctrine and of handling the scriptures. Study to show yourself approved, a workman, Paul says to Timothy, who needs not be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So an equipping, here's my three E's for being apt to teach or able to teach. Equipped in sound doctrine, able to teach the scriptures soundly, effective in that you can carry the day as a team against false teachers, and then eager. The pastor should be the kind of people who want to teach. They want to teach in a midweek newsletter, teach in Sunday sermon, teach a little bit in the welcome, not an overwhelming way. They're always always ready to teach with all of the planning, intentionality, hope, and patience that teaching requires. That's really good. Brother, I I, I love this book. Like I said, I think it's a, a fantastic resource for guys who are in ministry, for church members, and for guys that are aspiring for ministry Oftentimes for guys that have aspirations for ministry, they wrestle with the question, am I called? And they really need to wrestle with the question, am I qualified? And I think Mm -hmm. this book does a really good job of laying out the qualifications and just walking guys through what those look like. And uh, you just did a great job writing it. Last question, any final words of encouragement for pastors and church leaders listening this week? That's good. You know... uh... You just mentioned about you know laying out the qualifications and guys finding if they're qualified. So here's here's honesty from the author <laughs> about a, a one effect I hope the book doesn't have, and the reason I hope it doesn't have this is because sometimes I I felt this in the class uh, that I've that I've taught at Bethlehem College and Seminary, and the guys will say these are guys who aspire to ministry. They're there doing full time training for ministry, and there can be a study of the qualifications that is unnecessarily discouraging hmm. you know like the, the banner qualification of above reproach you can hear that in a very minimal way like above reproach there's no blatant red flags that are public about this man's unrighteousness you can hear it in a very minimal way or you can hear that in a very 
what scrupulous maximalist way of above reproach you know have i ever done anything wrong in my life like, right yeah you have man yeah. you're a sinner right like, you need jesus christ so if you're going to take it that way that's not the, that's not the above reproach paul's talking about the public office he's talking about a, that's a public qualification being above reproach so anyway that's just an example of saying i hope that the study of the qualifications is not discouraging to men that have holy, noble aspirations to ministry. I hope it's encouraging and that these things are accessible by the power of the spirit. You know, you, you don't, you don't get converted one day and then manifestly be become a man of self-control the next day. Like these, these are, these are, these are process. So none of the qualifications are digital. It's not like these are simple boxes yeah. to check. Yeah. I like to say that the qualifications are analog. They're, they're all on a, on a, on a scale. They're all on a, a, on a line. And it's the job of the congregation and the elders in bringing on a new pastor to say, you know, is, is this guy, he, nobody's assuming he's, he's perfect. He's, he's a sinner. Like he's, he's a, a guy in the midst of his ongoing uh, sanctification. But when it comes to it, and it, is he is he meeting these qualifications in a real way? And does he keep working on these things? So one of my favorite quotes from Don Carson, one of my heroes, the Don, D.A. Carson, who <laughs> taught Trinity for all those years. I named his son after Don Carson of Don Carson. He said, these qualifications uh, are remarkable for being unremarkable. That mm -hmm. <laughs> if a man, if, a, if the Holy Spirit gets a hold of a man, and he grows for a season. He's discipled. He's accountable. These are very attainable things. Pastors are meant to be normal, but exemplary Christians. You know, not lording over the flock, First Peter 5 says, but being examples to the flock. Mm -hmm. So in one sense, the pastors are very average Joes. Like they're meant to be model Christians together as a team to model for the congregation what healthy Christianity is. And the call to the pastoral ministry is not a call to be famous, to be world-class, to yeah. be talked about on social media and celebrated. It is a very average, in Christian terms, it's a very average call of normal Christian faithfulness, which mm. is a miracle. Normal right. Christian faithfulness is a miracle. Right. Yeah, it is. And it's a miracle that the Holy Spirit loves to do and is doing all the time by the power of God's word in the context of the local church. Hmm. That's go. so good, brother. Well, that'll do it for today's conversation, Dr. Mathis. Brother, thank you again for your willingness to join today's discussion and for writing this incredibly helpful resource. I strongly encourage our listeners to add this book to their library, share it with guys who are aspiring for ministry. You won't regret doing so. There's also some helpful study questions in the back that are good to work with with guys who aspire for ministry as well. And we want to thank you, listener, for listening to another episode of Pastor Matters. If you found today's episode helpful, consider leaving us a five-star rating and review. We'd love to hear any feedback you'd be willing to give us. As always, it is our mission at the Center for Preaching and Pastoral Leadership to equip and encourage pastors. And I hope we've done that today with our conversation. And as always, brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain.